We've been walking through, we're, we're going to be in the, back in Habakkuk this week, and we, we started there last week, and I'll just tell you that where we come to in Habakkuk this week, this may be one of the hardest passages we have walked through since I've come as your pastor. And we're going to do it, no less, on a holiday weekend, and not just any holiday weekend, but on like the most patriotic holiday weekend in our country. And the reason this is a tough passage is because we're going to come to a woe passage a passage where God is speaking judgment and justice on sins. And when you come to these kind of passages, inevitably, these sins are sins that are, are pervasive on a national level. And so there is a challenge here because judgment is not a popular topic today. It's not a popular word, but here's what we know to be true. I told you when I came as your pastor, I'm deeply convicted that we preach verse by verse, and the reason you do it is because it means you can't skip the hard passages. It also means this too. We looked at the Bible. If all Scripture is God-breathed, then the woe passages are just as breathed out by God as every other, and God desires just as much to speak to your heart and my heart through them as any other. So we're going to walk through it today. Now, let me just make this proviso. Because of the nature of the passage, and I realize we live in a very hyper-politically charged day, don't read into anything today. I'm going to be plain with it. Just let's pray. Let's simply allow God's Word to pierce our hearts as He moves. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn back to Habakkuk. And if you weren't here last week or if you go, hey, I was here, but I don't really know where Habakkuk is, if you remember where Jonah is, just go a couple books to your right. If you can find Matthew in the New Testament, just go a couple books to your left, and you'll end up in Habakkuk. Now, as we go there, we're going to pick back up in chapter 2, verse 4, where we left off last week. But I want to remind us, want to remind us the context of where we're at. Habakkuk is writing at a time when the, when the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, uh, is, is quickly coming to its end. He's, he's living in a time when King Manasseh came to the throne two ge- generations prior. He brought, according to Scripture, more wickedness and idolatry into the lives of the people of God than had any king before him, to the extent that even he will offer child sacrifices to pagan deities from his own children. His grandson, after he dies, will come to the throne, Josiah. Now, under Manasseh, God makes the decision because of Israel's refusal to repent that the the final step of discipline is necessary. They will be conquered and sent into exile. It's coming. But when Josiah comes to the throne, Josiah begins to lead the people in reforms, and revival begins to take place. And Josiah, more than any king prior to him, maybe than, than David, leads the people to walk with God. And so God honors Josiah and says, this will not take place in Josiah's day. But things are happening uh, globally around Habakkuk. Josiah has died in battle against Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt as Egypt's armies are going to assist the Assyrians against the up-and-coming power of the day, Babylon. Jehoiakim is now on the throne, and Jehoiakim leads the people of Judah to walk in wickedness just like Manasseh. In fact, Jehoiakim is the only king mentioned in Scripture. doesn't mean he's the only one to do it because tradition holds that uh, other prophets are put to death by other kings, but he's the only king mentioned in Scripture as having put to death the prophets. 
And so Habakkuk is, just to remind us, he is living in a day where he has watched a nation around him that once worshiped God quickly capitulate to idolatry, to cultural fads, to trends, to that which tickles ears. He has watched wickedness, dishonesty, dishonest gain, violence all around him are the words that he uses. And as a prophet, as a righteous one living in that day, he is crying out with passion, God move. You can imagine in his shoes, God bring revival. God bring justice upon these these wicked rulers. Bring, you can imagine the hardship he is facing easily because you just have to look at what Jeremiah faced because Habakkuk and Jeremiah are living in the same time. And it's in this context that, that we saw last week, Habakkuk makes, cries out and asks a question. In chapter one, he says, God, where are you? How long, O Lord, will I cry out? Where are you? It seems as if you are silent to my petitions and you are inactive to the wickedness around me. And God answers him. Says Habakkuk, I haven't been inactive. I've been very active. In fact, I'm raising up Babylon to come and deal with and bring discipline to bring correction upon Judah. And when Habakkuk hears this, he goes, oh my goodness, God, how how can you? We're horrible, but they're far worse. You, God, you, you are one who are pure, you're holy, you're everlasting. You don't approve of evil and how on earth can you use Babylon to to be this instrument of of discipline and he doesn't understand this, this blows his mind and so he comes into chapter two and he says, I'm gonna wait, I won't move until God answers and God answers him and this is what God says, look with me, chapter two, verse four. He says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him but the righteous will live by his faith. And, and when we looked at that last week, what we mean by righteous, those who have been made righteous because of the blood of Christ. Now, not in that day. Those who are righteous in that day would have been looking forward to God's promised Messiah. You and I, if we are righteous in this day, it's not by our own merit. It's because we have responded in faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're not righteous because we've earned it. We are righteous because in responding to Christ, if we have done so in repentance and faith, God has declared us righteous. And if we're righteous, God's answer is, Habakkuk, I hear your questions and I am not rebuking your questions. I am not diminishing the problem or the struggle around you, but here is the call for you. You as my righteous one must live by faith. You must trust who I am as I say I am. And as you trust who I am, that faith produces faithfulness where you follow who I am and what I say that the righteous will live by his faith in church family. I want you to understand as we move through the rest of chapter two today, that is still the primary application for you and me today. And we'll come back to that at the end and show you why because God's gonna expand the answer and say, if you're gonna walk by faith, you gotta know who I am and what I do. Well, here I am, Habakkuk, look what I do. And so look with me. Behold is for the proud one. His soul is not right within him. Then drop to verse five. Furthermore, Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home, or literally that phrase is so he does not find restful pasture. Now think about that. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures. 
Well, here, the proud man, the haughty man, is the opposite of what the Lord does. He cannot find pasture. Instead, he enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers nations uh, all, to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Here's what he says. There's a contrast. If the righteous one will walk by faith, which produces faithfulness, there is also the proud one. And the proud one, their soul is not right. Something is off. And this proud one, this proud one has an appetite that is never satisfied. There is no rest in their spirit, always hungering after more, always seeking that next thing as if an addiction. For wine betrays the haughty man. The haughty man consumes that which seemingly tastes good and and feels good and promises, but it betrays him. Ultimately referencing this proud person, this who just consumes with an appetite of greed and everything, at some point what they pursue will betray. So look with me in verse 6 as God spells out how, how their appetite will betray them. Will not all of these, referencing the nations that are conquered, take up a taunt song against him, the proud one, even mockery and insinuations against him? Now understand, the rest of these verses, 6 through 20, are what we call a taunt song. It is literally a poetic device through which, using, uh, through which you're going to ridicule and point out the folly and expose uh, the, uh, the wickedness of a group of people. And so this is, these are poetic. And so as we walk through these, these five woes, understand since there is a poetic nature to them, aspects are figurative, aspects are literal. And we'll point those out as we go. So will not these, these nations, take up a taunt song, a song of ridicule, even mockery, insinuations, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? And those who collect from you awaken. Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all the inhabitants. Here's the song starts with, woe to those who increase what is not there. That word woe has a twofold meaning. On one hand, it means to lament, to grieve, to sorrow, and it's applicable here. Because here these nations who have experienced sorrow and suffering at the hands of the proud, woe, there is a lament. There should be lament in the face of wickedness and oppression and evil and injustice, the broken sinfulness in our world. At the same time, woe also is not just a lament, it is a pronouncement of guaranteed judgment. So when we say woe to the one who who gains what is not his, we're lamenting that someone has gained what is not theirs, but there is also a declaration that that person's actions, that wickedness has been tried, judged, and will be dealt with guaranteed. So woe. And in this first woe, woe to him who increases what what is not his. This is the doom of the extortioner. The idea here in the passage is that someone is taking what is not theirs, what is rightfully someone else's, and robbing them of it. Now, the language talks about uh, loans and, and, and makes himself rich with loans or heavy with loans, and it's the idea 
It's the idea behind that, that when you gave a loan, someone gave you a personal piece of, of property uh, that if they ever defaulted on the loan, you would keep. And the language here is that where instead of them defaulting on the loan and you keeping it, you find a way through unjust means to rob them of the loan and take it for yourself, even though they have done nothing wrong. Now, in the best of my research this week, I don't know if Babylon was literally offering people they conquered loans or not, or if just simply, at minimum, it's figurative to say the Babylonians were coming in and in their wickedness, taking what wasn't there. However, this book was written to the Jews, those living in Judah. And in Judah, they were absolutely, part of Judah's sin was the fact that they were defrauding each other in wrong loans. So while the woe is against Babylon, if you are someone in Judah reading it, you have to check your own heart. Wait a minute, am I engaging in action that is taking what is someone else's and plundering it for myself? And the woe says to Babylon, will not your creditors at some point suddenly and without warning, you're going to get your due just like you've done to others. So the doom of the extortioner, it's the idea we see today when governments use unlawful means to take that which is someone else. It's the idea when corporations do the same thing. It's, it's the idea in a personal life when you or, or me or someone else engages in actions where someone has something we want and we find unjust and wrong means to take what is rightfully theirs from them. That can take place in a variety of contexts. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house. So cutting off, by cutting off many people, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who, from, who gets evil gain for his house. That word evil gain is this word that literally refers to a weaver, someone with fabric. And you say, I want three yards of fabric. And instead of, and you pay for three yards of fabric, but they cut it short. They give you two and a half yards of fabric. That's the idea here. It's that someone's cutting short. So if the first woe is someone who is taking something that is rightfully someone else's, this woe is someone keeping from someone else what rightfully they have bought and have earned. It's the greedy and the arrogant. It's their doom. It's closely tied to the first but slightly different. It says, woe to you who your house, and by house there, it's not just the literal building of your home. It's you have used unlawful means to rob people out of what is rightfully theirs. You have kept it for yourself, and you have used it to bless your house, your family, those people inside your circle. It, it makes you think of the inverse in Hebrews where it mentions in Hebrews 11 that Moses, though a member of Pharaoh's house, by faith rejected the gain he had as a member of Pharaoh's house because he saw the wickedness done to his people. Here, those in the house, they may not be committing it, but they are benefiting from it without remorse. And it says to put the nest on high, and it's incredible imagery, to put the nest on high, to be delivered from calamity. What, what they're doing is they are keeping from others what is rightfully theirs, and they are using it to put their house like a nest, like an eagle's nest. 
And eagles build their nests high on rocky crags where it's difficult for danger and predators and anyone to get to them. There is a feeling for the nest of eagles that they are safe and protected from anything. And that's what it says. You have kept what is rightfully other people's and you have kept it for yourself so that you can build your house, so that you can, you can create a security and a safety. And because it's up high, you think no calamity. You believe you are untouchable. Woe to you, woe to you because you have looted and the rema- uh, uh, because you have cut off and it says you've actually devised a shameful thing. What you've done will bring shame upon your family. And not only that, but that which you have sinned to keep, that house which you have constructed, the stone and the rafters will cry out against you. It says in verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. It is indeed, here, here's the idea of those who have taken and resorted to war, to wrongful conquering, to putting, to a, a disvaluing of life, to the shedding of blood and the use of violence and destruction to build for themselves their own kingdom. Certainly Babylon, if you and I had traveled back to Babylon, ancient Babylon was a majestic city. Had eight ornate gates, at least one of them was the massive, beautiful, blue-covered ornate, had, a, had an open, wide center walkway, had 12 temples, had the great palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and in the northeast corner of that palace had the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Ancient Babylon was extraordinary. If it was today, it would be on all of the magazines. It would be on the Architecture Digest YouTube channel. People would flock to go visit and be amazed by the grandeur. But it might be missed that the grandeur of that city was built on the backs of people they had conquered and enslaved. The beauty of the city sought to drown out to the human condition the the injustice that was used to build it, but it was not lost on God because look what he says, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts? that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? Is it not indeed, is it not indeed because of God's plan that that beautiful city that you have taken painstaking efforts and, and, and defrauded and robbed people and wrongfully enslaved people to build, all it will amount to is rubble for a bonfire? Because it will fall. Why will it fall? Look what it says. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. Why, O Babylon, you who has used wicked means and violence and who has devalued life for the sake of building your kingdom you believe is eternal, why will it amount to just rubble? Because no kingdom, corporate, government, personal, will ever get the glory of the world because God has written it such that only he and he alone will be the one who fills the earth with his glory and he does not give his glory to another and when you think about kingdoms you easily think about I mean the reality is this there is no nation existing today that does not have scars in its history you think of nations like, old nations like Rome. You think of the Soviet Union and the peoples they captured and the ways they defrauded and, and, and disvalued life and used them to build. 
Even in our own nation, there are, there are parts of our history where even the same could be said, and here is the reality, whether it's on a government level, whether it's on a business level. The business who says, we don't care about your life. We don't care about God's calling to, to your family. You will give us your 80 hours of work a week, and we will take everything from you, and we will promise you the moon. To the boss who devalues the employees, to the church who does not see her people as family, but just as worker ants to build a bigger building and a bigger church. All of these things fall in the application of those who, who, who build a city with bloodshed, who found a town with violence, who, who diminish life, and here is the reality. All of those efforts fail because God will not give his glory to another. Look at the fourth woe. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now, now you therefore drink and expose your own nakedness, and the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts which terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and the inhabitants. Now here's what it says. Quite literally, it says, Woe to you who create mixed drinks who use alcohol to manipulate people and expose them to shame. So quite literally, understand, there is no place in Scripture where drunkenness is not viewed as a sin. In addition to that, there is no place in Scripture where strong drink, hard liquor, is not outright outlawed and prohibited. But also understand this. Here's a place where this is somewhat figurative. Judah very likely was doing this literally to one another manipulating and using sordid gain and using things to expose shame. But for Babylon, I'm, I'm not so sure Babylon went into uh, conquered people and after conquering them showed up at the local drink station and, and started trying to give. I'm not sure that that's what Babylon was doing. In fact, I'm quite sure it wasn't. What Babylon was doing was this. The idea of the cup is pouring out wrath. Babylon was coming in, obliterating people's them and shaming them as a laughingstock to all nations. The idea here with the fourth woe is whether it's conquering on a, on a level like Babylon or whether it's quite literal through the use, the, the use and misuse of alcohol or whether it's just simply this, the use of things in a manipulative way so that the one you manipulate you put to shame and disgrace before other people. That could be something as simple as manipulating someone, a coworker. Oh yeah, you should totally take that job knowing it's destined for failure and then they get disgraced by the boss and I get the promotion. Or things on social media, bullying in the back of the classroom. How, however we use manipulation to hold others to shame and the Lord says, here's the reality because you've done this, my cup, my cup of wrath is gonna come, it is going to deal with you and not just this, but when it deals with you, it's gonna deal with you in a holistic way and there's an interesting statement that time doesn't permit me to say more than this but for violence done to Lebanon, that's a reference to how the, the kingdom of Babylon came into Lebanon where there were beautiful forests and they obliterated the forests rather than stewarded them. And I emphasize steward. God has given us the right to use the wood to create things. 
but he also called us to steward it. They, and, and, and tearing down the forest, they destroyed the animals. There is a holistic aspect reflected in Romans of the fact that all of creation was subjected to brokenness by our sin, and all of creation, all of nature is crying out for the day when God will bring restoration with the new heaven and the new earth. But while it's holistic, the main reason for the woe still comes down to the uniqueness of human life made in the image of God. It's because of human bloodshed and violence this woe comes upon you. And last, we come to the fifth woe, and it says this, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. That is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with silver and gold and there is no breath inside it at all. We come to this final woe and the woe is spoken against idolatry. Idolatry, and it describes what, it, what an idol is. It tells us in that, in that idol they're made by man. They're in the image of man. They're unable to respond to man. They're teachers of falsehood, but they're objects of false faith, but they're found speechless and lifeless. There's no ability to respond. And in many parts of our world today, the kind of idolatry that pops into your mind and in my mind likely where we think of bowing down to graven engines and idols, it's still very real. But that's not the limits of idolatry. Idolatry can come in the form of any possession. We, cannot, we can worship our house, the home we live in, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the jewelry we adorn ourselves with, the money we have, stuff. We can idolize people. We can make idols out of our family, getting a spouse, having children, protecting them. We can make an idol out of our social standing. How many likes or we get on Instagram or Twitter how many friends, how many are, are we, do we have more followers than we're following? We can make idols out of career and school with achievements and titles, power, wealth, with sports and extracurriculars, taking up time. We can make idols out of our talent, intellectual ability, athletic talent, musical talent. We can make idols because at the end of the day, the idol, an idol is the worship of that which we make rather than our maker. And God says, woe to those who make and worship idols. Your idols are doomed to fail you. They look nice, but they are lifeless. They are speechless. There is no breath inside it at all. But the Lord is, present tense right now, in his holy temple. Let me tell you what that means. The Lord is right now sitting on his throne. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth, Psalm 46, the nations rage. Be still and know that I am God. You come to the end of this woe and and God tells Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you need to understand right now you see, you see theft and extortion. You see greed and arrogance. You see murder and violence. You see manipulation and shaming. You see idolatry all around you and it seems as if it will not end. And when Babylon comes and brings hardship and brings pain, when Babylon comes in, you'll see even more. 
But you understand this, Habakkuk. Understand this, that I am securely and completely and totally on my throne. I am in control. My plan will play out. And because I am on my throne, I say, woe to these sins. My justice will be poured out. I will deal with every last drop. And you can be confident of that because I am on my throne and because I am on my throne, no kingdom will take over this world because it will be my glory that fills this world. And church family, do we see that today? Do we see today in the midst of a world raging around us, in the midst undoubtedly, some of you going, forget the world, pastor. I see these things in my personal life, at work, inside of my family, with peers. I see it on social media. Forget even the world and the, and the news and those things. Do we know that God is firmly seated on his throne, church family? He's firmly on his throne. And listen, his governance from his throne is real even though we see hardship and suffering. There is no effort in Scripture to ever deny. Scripture's very clear. God is on his throne. We live in a world broken by sin. And because we live in this world, we will experience hardship and the results of sin, suffering, and brokenness. And by the way, when God stepped into this world in the flesh, he didn't exempt himself from any of those things either. Scripture never denies that God is both on his throne and we live in a, in a tough, hard world. It never denies the real cause. This passage tells you, God's telling Habakkuk, Babylon's coming. There's gonna be real destruction. There's gonna be real suffering. There will be real pain. There will even be real death. God's word never denies the reality of sin, but it is clear that God is on his throne even when Sin abounds. God was on his throne when Israel cried out for years in slavery to Egypt. God was on his throne when Jericho falls and the people of God rejoice. He was also on his throne right after when the people of Ai beat the people of Israel because they had sinned. God is on his throne when David was on the run for his life even though he was the anointed king. God was on his throne when Babylon swept in and devastated Judah and Jerusalem. God was on his throne when James the just was thrown off the temple. God was on his throne when John the apostle was boiled in oil. God was on his throne when, when Paul was led down that road and beheaded for his faith in Christ. God was on his throne when Peter went to the cross and tradition holds wanted to be crucified upside down. And you better believe, church family, God was on his throne when his own son poured out his blood on the cross to spring salvation to the world. God is on his throne even when there is hardship. And because he's on his throne, he will faithfully dispense justice. Listen, Galatians says, do not be deceived. Don't believe a lie. God will not be mocked. Whatever a person sows, they will reap. Don't buy the lie that the enemy would whisper, is God really on his throne? Look at all. God will justly deal with every last drop of sin. Woe, it's why he says woe to those who walk in these ways. Judgment is certain, even though, church family, at times it seems slow. Listen, Exodus when God reveals his character to Moses, Exodus chapter 34, he says, the Lord God who is gracious, who is compassionate, who is abounding in loving kindness, 
who forgives iniquity. These incredible realities that give us, when we realize our own brokenness, give us hope for God to save us and redeem us. But he also says, I, I, I will forget no sin, and I visit the iniquity. Here's the reality, church family. God is not slow as some count slowness. So the world says, your God's not real. Your God won't bring justice. He's not showing up. What's going on? God is not slow, but God is acting in human history to bring lost, born into sin, by nature children of wrath, men, women, boys, and girls, to saving faith in Christ. Amen. Saving faith in Christ to which he can offer. When you read this passage and you see, wow, look at the intensity of God's wrath in this passage. Look at how strong his, his, his animosity towards this sin is. Understand this, church family. That is only a fraction of the wrath that Jesus took on the cross. And if you know Christ in this room today, let that amaze you that Jesus drank every last drop of the fierce wrath of God, that settled and just disposition to bring justice to every last sin. He became our sin, and he drank every last drop. It's by his stripes we find healing. Maybe you're in here today, friend. Maybe you're in here, or maybe you're online, and you say, I don't know Christ then can I plead with you here? There is a real and just punishment. The wages of sin is death. It's not overdramatic. It's eternal death. It is just before God because God is just in flawlessness and in perfection. But here today, the reason for God's slowness and returning and correcting everything is to give you a shot to know Him. And you can know Him today repentance and faith. Church family, he dispenses uh, justice and righteousness faithfully. He also, his glory will fill the earth. Understand, it says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, some commentators would say knowledge means this is referencing that day when the Lord returns. It's a new heaven and new earth, and only those living on the earth are those who have faith in Christ. It could be that. It could also be this. We saw this earlier. There is coming a day when every man, boy, uh, man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived will, will be before the throne of God, those who are saved by grace through faith, those who rejected Christ, they will all be there as well as every angel and every demon. And it says, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Doesn't mean all will be saved. Those who are saved will do this to joy. Those who are not saved will do this to terror. But everyone will confess Jesus is Lord. His glory will fill the whole earth. This is what God is on the move doing, church family. And if you and I are not certain he's on his throne, then you and I will step back from the fact that God has called us to be a part as he moves in his glory. No kingdom will take the glory that is intended for God alone. And because God is on his throne, what we know is that the proud will fall and reap their just due. No one gets off the hook. This whole passage is woe to the proud. It says, it brings up things that are sin, theft, robbery, taking what's rightfully someone else's, extortion, keeping something that is rightfully someone else's from them that they've earned. It shows the disrespect of life because God has bestowed the right to life to every living person. 
It shows the use of manipulative and drunken tactics to, to shame. It, it shows idolatry. We need to be clear today that all these things, though these are maybe not the sins we typically harp on, all of these things are sin. All of these things God speaks woe against. All of these things are a result of pride. You go back to the beginning, the righteous will live by faith. And understand, church family, there's a very real reality. You and I can live by faith or we can live by pride. We can live by what God says, who he says, how he says it in the face of all that's going on, or we can walk by pride, by our own effort, by our own understanding. We can take things that make sense, and pride is dangerous. It appeals to our fleshly ambition. It twists motives into selfishness, and it's dangerous because it is destined to fail. So church family, if we walk through this list and you go, wow, I think I'm guilty of some of that, we as believers need to just humbly confess that to the Lord and repent and return to fellowship with him. Church family, we need to be, be attentive that we don't inadvertently support these things. Whether that be on a government level, whether that be on a corporate level and a business and, and, and something other, whether that be on a church level, whether that be on a personal level where we go, well, that's just the way it is. You know, it's just, I, church family, it mentions the house in verse nine. If you and I are gonna walk by faith and like Moses, we have to live and move and breathe in a fallen land, but by faith we must reject gain that comes from sinfulness, even if we're not the direct ones perpetuating it. Because here's the reality, church family, because we can be sure of God's governance, because we can be sure God is on his throne, because we can be sure that God will bring justice, that pride will fall, that God's glory will fill this earth, because we can be sure then we can walk by faith into faithfulness. This is really what God's answering Habakkuk. Habakkuk, in the midst of all this evil that surrounds you, I am calling you to trust who I am, even when it's hard. I am calling you out of that trust in who I am and who I've said I am. I am calling you to out of that faith, walk in faithfulness, to carry out the task in front of you, to be faithful to share the gospel, to go to all the nations, to be faithful to not return evil for evil, but meet evil with good. I'm calling you to be faithful, to live in light of the fact that because I am on my throne, I am coming back and my return is certain and it's not meant to be a pithy saying that we just amen in church, it's, it's meant to be something we amen in church and drives every decision we make when we walk out this building enables us to walk. That's what he's telling to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I've called you to walk in faith. Now here's the answer. I want you to see, Habakkuk, I am on my throne. My glory wins in the end and my justice is sure. I will deal with the problem. And church family, here's why this is key. Here's why this is key. Listen to Psalm 73 for a moment. Asaph writes and he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock wickedly. They speak of oppression. And he goes on. Here's what he's saying, church family, and here's why we've got to be clear on these truths, that God is on his throne, and sin and pride will fail. We've got to be clear because there is a danger inherent for you and I when we are surrounded by wickedness to look around and go, you know what? Is God really in control? 
Look how good those people have it. It's so easy. It'd be so easy to cross the line on truth and just be okay with this sin and, and it'd be so much calmer and I wouldn't have to face the scorn and the social media backlash and, and the backlash at work. I wouldn't have to stand out. There is a real danger there, church family, but Asaph will say that when he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, that as he got alone and he, he meditated on, as he, as he went into, likely for him, the temple building, as he remembered who God is on his throne, that he was strengthened to stand. Jesus even makes the statement as he's talking to his disciples about prayer, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? See, church family, we live in a day where it always seems presently like wickedness wins. But wickedness doesn't always win. God's justice always wins. On October 13th, 539 B.C., there in Babylon in the palace, the son of the, son of the king who's acting as the ruler of the, the empire at that point, Belshazzar, holds a massive feast. And in irony upon ironies, this passage is mentioned, drunkenness and wine, multiple times. They are having a massive party with all sorts of wine. And in that party, all of a sudden, a hand appears on the wall and writes these words, Mene, Mene, Tekil, Upharshish. And they call Daniel to come in. And he translates and he says, here's what God's word has says. He's numbered your kingdom. He's weighed you and found you wanting. And Persia will conquer you. And that night, as Babylon's best and brightest in rulers drank and enjoyed and reveled in their party. The unconquerable city with walls hundreds of feet high and thick fell to Persia without a single fight. And the glory and splendor of this Babylonian empire who saw themselves as untouchable, they don't even last a hundred years. Church family, make no mistake today. The powers of our day will fall. The false theologies, the false philosophies, the nations walking in wickedness, politicians, individuals, influencers, whoever, whatever power you want to reference, whether big or whether personal in your life, understand the powers of our day will fall because God is on his throne. He will bring his justice. He is working for redemption. His glory will fill the earth. So church family, may we make a choice this day not to fall to the temptation of pride in the way of this world, but to walk by faith into faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, Lord, the, the, the struggle that Habakkuk faces, God, all of us see it. We see it on a global level. Wars, rumors of wars. We see it on a national level. Anger, animosity, disagreement. God, we see it on personal levels. And there is a subtle temptation, Lord, to question who you are. To seek out our own answers that satisfy our own flesh. Lord, may we not capitulate. 
God, we can trust who you are and we can also be real in front of you with our cries. Lord, where are you? Lord, how, could, how, how can you? Lord, you don't rebuke Habakkuk. Instead, you answer Habakkuk. Lord, may we be found as people, as people who believe you at your word. And in believing you at your word, Holy Spirit, by your power within us, who follow you faithfully in your word. Lord, it's to you we look as we respond. Jesus, it's in your name I pray.